Coming up next, The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy. Every Thursday from 4pm, right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behavior and patterns of behavior? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Welcome to The Crunch on Reality Check Radio. I'm your host, Cam Slater, and this is the place we crunch the political issues and cut through the spin. I'm hot on Auckland Council's plans to introduce congestion charging this week. It's an outrageous attack on the ratepayers and not something Wayne Brown was elected to introduce. My first guest this afternoon is Auckland Councillor Wayne Walker, and we'll be looking at Auckland's transport mess and discuss congestion charging. And then I'll be talking with New Zealand First MP Shane Jones as he gets ready to assume his ministerial positions. I suspect the Wellington bureaucrats are in for a rude awakening. We'll dip into the mailbag, of course. I really love this part of the show. And we'll close out the show with Cam's buddies and see what they have to say about congestion charging. We also have a bonus for you. Author Alex Epstein has sent us two books that we've decided to use as prizes. Now, only one is available because my mate Mike from Foxton had a wee accident cycling and is laid up recovering. So we've decided to send him a copy. The book is called Fossil Future and makes the case as to the importance of fossil fuels. And Alex Epstein suggests that in order to flourish, we need more oil, more gas, more coal, not less. So text or email us telling us what you prefer. Use either oil or electric in the subject line and tell us why you think that. And next week, we'll announce a winner. So send comments to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. You're listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Reality Check Radio. 
Apparently, Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown is floating the idea of congestion charging for Auckland. Now, he's either being very cunning, suggesting it so when the ensuing outcry from angry ratepayers erupts, he can say he's listening to concerns and cancel the idea. Or he's being deliberately provocative as he seeks new ways to gouge ratepayers. And I'm starting to think it is the latter. He was elected by Aucklanders to sort out Auckland Transport, yet here he is promoting their wildest dreams. When he was speaking to News Talk's Heather Duplessis Allen a week ago, Brown said he was looking at placing the congestion charges on State Highway 1 between Penrose and Green Lane on-ramps and State Highway 16 between Lincoln Road and Teatatu on-ramps. And apparently, between 7am and 9am, these two motorways jam up, and again between 4.30pm and 6.30pm, they jam up again. Well, who would have thought? And he reckons that travelling at peak times is easily avoidable. Really? I bet telling your boss that Wayne Brown said it was okay not to travel during peak hour won't really be a winner. And also, apparently again, there needs to be big discussions about the price. And he reckons a reasonable price would be $5 each time the motorist used the specific roads at the peak times. Now you think about this, if you live in South Auckland, say, Manarewa, and you're travelling in, the only way you can get around these places is to go off the motorway, go around it, and get back on the motorway, adding more to your trip, increasing your carbon emissions, if you believe in that, and costing the taxpayers, ratepayers, and everybody else, including your boss, extra money because of the time delay. And so what Wayne Brown is wanting to do is to charge the poorest in New Zealand $5 each way for daring to use the motorways which the government provided. And he's also claimed that the prices would then ensure people would start to think, maybe I should start work at that time and work a bit later and go home a bit later. Hmm, okay. Well, here's what I reckon people will do. They'll find a way around where they get charged. They'll move the congestion from the motorways to suburban roads, further snarling up the city. But most of the congestion in Auckland is directly attributable to either Auckland Transport or Waka Kotahi. And let me explain all the ways. First, insufficient motorway planning, like OTR Valley to Constellation on the Northern Motorway which was widened to five lanes each way, but that short 2.15-kilometre stretch of road terminates in two lanes each way. And the roadworks that took the best part of six years to complete only succeeded in moving the traffic jam 2.15 kilometres closer to the city. Then there's the poorly designed on-ramps that are far too short, especially in the exact places that Wayne Brown wants to tax us. Then there's the stupid traffic lights on those poorly designed on-ramps that drip-feed traffic onto the motorway but cause huge snarl-ups in suburban streets as a result. Then there's the turning of every pedestrian crossing into a massive suspension-wrecking bar, slowing traffic to a crawl, and add in a million miles of bike lanes that take up space on the roads we pay for so the occasional road maggot bludging off our road user charges can cycle somewhere but really to work. And then there's the nonsensical bus lanes that do the same as the cycle lanes so that mostly empty buses can transport the three people they carry somewhere, not even remotely close to where they need to go. 
public transport's often defined as a slow, expensive way of traveling from not where you are to not where you want to be at a time that doesn't suit you in the company of people you'd never let into your home. And of course, there's the reduction in speed limits on many busy roads down to 30 kilometers an hour or 60 kilometers on some rural roads. And then, of course, Waka Kotahi persistently closes Auckland Harbour Bridge when anything above a gentle zephyr threatens to blow some old nana off course as she trundles up the middle lane of the bridge at 60 kilometres an hour. And of course, we mustn't forget the road cones. They're like stupid people. They're everywhere. And finally, the poor maintenance of city roads and highways. So such a point that driving an SUV is almost mandatory. Look, Wayne Brown wasn't elected to introduce congestion charging. He was elected to gut Auckland transport like a trout. He should do that instead of trying to foist another impost onto the long-suffering ratepayer and motorist. He forgets that we've already had our pockets raided by the last government who socked us with a special Auckland tax on top of fuel prices. Well, where did that money go? Well, goodness only knows. Where is it now? Who knows? What have we got for it? Well, nothing, of course. And here's another thing Wayne Brown has forgotten. He neither owns those roads nor controls them and is prevented by law from doing anything with them. They're state highways bought and paid for by Waka Kotahi, or as they'll soon be known, New Zealand Transit Authority. So as pie-in-the-sky congestion charges are a busted flush, a dead duck, which is what he'll be if he doesn't start doing the things he promised he would do. I suggest he starts sharpening his filleting knife and starts gutting Auckland Transport or get out of the way and let someone else do it if he's too squeamish at seeing bureaucrat guts splattering everywhere. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing and the app is now live. You can visit the App Store's direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Wayne Walker is one of two Albany Ward councillors in Auckland. We've often caught up for a few chinwags on the beaches of Whangaparaa, but it's been a while since I chatted with him, so let's see what he thinks about Auckland's transport woes and congestion charging. He joins me now. Welcome to The Crunch, Wayne. Pleased to have you on board. Sure, thanks for having me. Now, Wayne, you're the one of the two Albany councillors that look after an area basically from Campbell's Bay all the way up the coast, including Whangaparaa up to Waiwera. Isn't that right? That's right. And there are two local board areas. The one that runs up the coast, that's Hibiscus and Bays. And then the other local board area is Upper Harbour, which runs from East Coast Road all the way almost to the Northwestern Motorway. So that takes in the Albany Basin, Otiha Valley Road, Constellation Drive, Paramaramo, Green Heights. um, It's a huge area that you have to look after. West Harbour. It's a big area, you know, well over 200,000 population, more than that actually, probably 220, 230. So, yeah, a big area. Of course, when you're elected as a councillor, you're elected 
um, as a regional councillor. Yes. So, of course, you take a particular interest in your ward, but you're making decisions and you're committed to Auckland as a whole. Yeah, and your area that you're responsible for has got huge amounts of development uh, happening there, and the last government uh, committed to finally building that bridge that's going to give better access to Whangaparaa Peninsula. That's a long time coming, isn't it? That's correct. I mean, the main driver for it was reducing congestion through Silverdale because Silverdale's become a, a real bottleneck. The cars that go to Whangaparaa from the city, they have to travel through uh, Silverdale. Obviously, you've got the cars coming from Silverdale itself and Arewa and Red Beach, and you've got cars going east and west. So the idea of Penlink increasingly is it helps to take some of that congestion off that point. And you're right, there are big developments. You've had Millwater, and now there's Milldale over the other side of the motorway, which is going to have quite some thousands of homes. I used to live in your area, and every now and then we'd catch up on Arkles Bay and have a bit of a chinwag about various yeah, issues yeah, that's and right. things like that. <laughs> so Lovely we've all, spot. We've always had a, a, a convivial relationship, haven't we, even though I can be confrontational sometimes. But I've always found you very easy to to talk to and totally approachable. But there's, sure. some, well, there's some issues that Whangaparaa in particular has, isn't there? I mean, we had the super city. We were supposed to have a homogenised rates and all of those things. But rubbish collection is still a bugbear for many of the residents around there. That's right. Having said that, that's largely been made the same across the region. We've had the recent rollout of the uh, food scrap bins that I certainly have some issues over. I would have preferred it to be optional so that if you don't want to use it, you don't have to pay for it. In my particular case, I have something called a hungry bin, which is a form of worm farm. It's incredibly efficient, and that's far better for the council than me putting some food scraps out, having them picked up in a vehicle with the consequent emissions, trucked all the way down to Reparoa, put through some form of um, biodigestion system, and then the trucks come back to Auckland. So um, I save the council a bit of money. And do a well, better job. And that's the thing. I talked to Ken Turner about that, and he's got a real bugbear about that whole food scraps thing. And, you know, I don't live up that way now. I mean, I live in an apartment building in Takapuna, and the food scraps bins just won't work in apartments. That is correct. Well, I guess, I guess the good news is that uh, you won't be paying for that service if you're in an apartment. That's my well, understanding. Well, I've got a waste disposal as well, so I'm not really totally green like you with you know, worm farming and those sorts of things, but each to their own, I say. Sure, sure, that's right, that's right. Now, you mentioned about the congestion, and you know, I used to travel up and down through Silverdale, getting onto the motorway, get, getting home, the long tail that would be from the Silverdale off-ramp all the way back to past OTR Valley every night you know, from about 3.30 to onwards. In the morning, you would uh, start hitting the tail around Otiha. The transit or Waka Kotahi or whatever they call themselves now spent an inordinate amount of time in about six years developing, extending the busway to Otiha Valley and at the same time creating about two and a half kilometres of five lanes either side. But it's kind of like not joined up thinking and we've got... (laughs) 
we've got um you know a situation where you got two lanes feeding into five which then feed into two and the reverse going north exactly the same all they seem to have done is move the congestion that caused about two and a half kilometers closer to Auckland City sure that's right and they recognize that from the outset so uh, when I've inquired they've, they've said look we expect things to be just as congested what it has done though is it does make it easier to get on to the Upper Harbour Highway. Absolutely. Because you've got a series of flyovers, and and that's got to be a better thing. Of course, that takes you over to the Northwestern Motorway, which is, if not, more congested. So it's, it's, okay until, to, it's okay until you get to Henderson, and then you hit the congestion, so you're stuffed either way. <laughs> Henderson is diabolical, you know, and I don't think that, uh, there's any simple solution there. There's a, a busway that's going into play, and that will make some difference. And certainly, the the northern busway has been hugely successful. I was on the steering committee that worked on that for a number of years. It's exceeded expectations, and that's certainly been great. Yeah, I mean, I I, uh, I thought the busway was a good idea, separating taking the buses off the motorway. But again, you know. When they extended it a little bit or changed it around, especially at Silverdale, they built a car park at Silverdale and then almost immediately after it opened, they then had to extend it and then do it all again. It it seems like there was uh, two or three goes at trying to get the car parking right. And even now, if you drive past the car parking at Silverdale and certainly at Otihar Valley, every car park's taken. So it's like they've... It's like they've only done a half-assed job on, right. on the parking. Why didn't they build a, a multi-level car park building to cater for it? Because they're going to have to do something like that eventually. Well, I was a Rodney District Councillor before I was an Auckland Councillor, and most of the other Rodney District Councillors, they um, they weren't at all interested in buses and the like. I was pretty much a lone voice. Mm. And I tried to get the then council to buy a much larger area of land for the park and ride as yep. they could have bought much more for actually very little extra extra cost. But they wouldn't do it. Uh, I don't know what, what the reason for that is. Um, there weren't adequate reasons given because I said to them, look, if you buy the extra land and you don't need it, it's going to be worth a lot of money. Uh, you could sell it and basically you know, fund the entire park and ride. But I didn't have support, so that didn't happen. So you're absolutely right. The park and ride at Silverdale is at capacity. It spills over into the Silverdale rugby parking yep. over the road and further along. And that situation is, is going to keep growing because getting to the park and ride on a feeder bus takes a long, long time. Yeah. So if you're on Fongapra, um, over in O'Rear and the like, and you want a quicker trip into town, you either get dropped off at the park and ride or you drive there and park up, and then you're on a fast service into the city, which is what people want. They want something that's fast, they want it convenient, and they want it easy. And the park and ride at Silverdale is very successful, and so is the one at um, Otiha Valley Road which is the biggest one. And that's at capacity too now. It's been at capacity for some time. So people park along at a reserve called Hooton Reserve. Unfortunately, there's very poor 
biking and walking facilities, um, particularly biking, to get from the park and ride to where you want to park. So one of the things that I'd like to see happen is that Auckland Transport get behind much more of these e-bike facilities. Yeah. So you can pick up an e-bike somewhere in the vicinity and and get to the park and ride quickly. That would enlarge the catchment of the park and ride. That's got to happen. The biggest problem that I see with public transport and uh, you know, in 2010, uh, I was campaigning against you, but we had a bit of fun on the uh, in at the public yeah, meetings okay. and things like that. Yeah, and uh, I wasn't expecting to win. I just wanted to get rid of the clown from Campbell's Bay, and we succeeded in doing that. But the one thing that I found amazing was every public meeting we went to, there was always talk about improving public transport. And I used to facetiously say, everybody says they want better public transport, but no one's prepared to ride on it. It's something that they want for everybody else. And then somebody described to me the other day that public transport tends to have a definition that is a slow and expensive way of traveling from not where you are to not where you want to be at a time that doesn't suit you in the company of people you'd never let into your home. And I don't know how, okay. we, can, I don't know how we can ever address that. Because <laughs> it's sure, kind of funny. Sure. But, and unfortunately, there are forms of public transport like the Gulf Harbour Ferry Service mm. that does take um, people from Whangapra into the city where they want to go. It is convenient. It is faster than using the bus. But the ferry service has been run down to the point where there's only one peak service in the morning city bound and one coming back in the in the evening and that's a campaign that myself and my fellow councillor John Watson have putting uh, have been putting a lot of effort into to get the ferry service um, up and running again but we're striking any amount of opposition from Auckland Transport who seem to be very reluctant Mm. and are now talking about eliminating the service completely in the upcoming long-term plan process, which you can imagine is incredibly upsetting for the people in Whangaparaa and the Hibiscus Coast because the biggest number of submissions to the recent regional public transport plan, I think well over 40% of them, were on the Gulf Harbour Ferry Service. Yeah, I mean, that's a very popular service uh, and it's it's extremely well um, received by, you know, I've had lots of people I, you know, were friends with up that way that would always take the ferry in to town. It arrives at the bottom of town where they want to be and all of those sorts of things. But, you know, you've actually hit on something that's kind of been annoying me uh, is that almost all of the problems that we have around congestion, around public transport, around these sorts of things, almost always come back to the responsibility of Auckland Transport. And, you know, we had last week, um, you know, the media announced that Auckland uh, Council is now going to deploy congestion charging. Of course, what the media didn't say is you're actually not doing that. You're um, going to investigate congestion charging. I wrote an article saying saying that this is an important thing. We need to actually have some discussion with us on, on because it seems that Auckland Transport has actually contributed in many ways to increasing congestion by pushing for bike lanes, by reducing road surfaces. Uh, you know, 
we've got a situation where they're creating these bike lanes uh, in some places and street sweepers can't clear the detritus uh, that occurs you know, in the gutters and things like that. And this is where the cyclists have to go, meaning that they don't actually use it. They now cycle on the road. So the road surface is reduced for vehicles and the cyclists don't use the things that they're using. Then we've got you know, these traffic lights at the on-ramps, which hold everything up. And the latest manifestation of craziness is these raised, almost judder bars uh, for uh, pedestrian crossings at a cost of something like, I've heard, $450,000 per one. Um, in Takapuna, yeah, there's three of, of them. That's, sure, and, and they're going to be signalised. Uh, I mean, I, I drove along that road today, mm. and... You know, it was off peak, it was okay, but uh, peak time, you'll just be bumper to bumper if the cars are slowed down even further. The other problem with those raised uh, crossings, and we're experiencing it in a number of locations around Auckland, is it means that when you have a storm event and you have a lot of rain, and the road becomes an overland flow path, it actually causes flooding. And this has happened with uh, shops in Devonport. Mm. It happens around the bays, you know, where you've got locations like Browns Bay and and other areas where you've got um, shops where the floor of the shop is near enough the level of the footpath, okay? And that's not always a bad thing because, you know, you want people and disabled people to be able to get around easily. But it means that if the drainage doesn't work and the drainage on the road doesn't work, you can get some very bad flooding. And I know that the Devonport Business Association were taking Auckland Transport to court, I think, because, yes, they did, because some of these raised crossings had not been thought through. And Auckland Transport has now had to back down because of that. Now, that's just over the over the flooding issue, and certainly you're right. In a number of instances, it's highly questionable whether you need something when there are other things that could happen. I'll, I'll give you another example. Mm. There's a proposal to put a number of these raised crossings in Browns Bay. Yep. And the reason is for safety um, improvements and the like. Of course, often... There aren't actually any records of accidents, but nevertheless, these crossings are still going to be put in because they're heavily subsidised by um, Waku Katahi, NZTA, you know, Mm. um, public money. But if you take a location like Browns Bay in the flat part of Browns Bay where the shops are and the like, that whole area could be made a lower speed zone. Yeah. And that's going to happen anyway once you've got lower speeds you have far less accidents, okay? So you don't necessarily need to put all these raised crossings in when there are other more effective, far more economical solutions. And in some of these um, areas, the cars aren't often travelling more than 30 k's an hour anyway, you know? I mean, that's the Um, thing, isn't it, is that who asked for these? Like, Like if you talk to local residents and say, who asked for these? pedestrian crossings to be done this way. Who asked for, um, take Takapuna and Hurstmere Road, pedestrianising parts of Takapuna Road and creating, Hurstmere Road and creating 
a cycleway that goes both ways up one side that you never see a bike on. Who sure, asked for this right. stuff? That's right. And the answer is almost nobody asked for these things. And AT has gone about spending vast sums of ratepayers' money on solutions for problems that don't exist. And then that is that is correct. And, and then and, and, and on if top I of can that, just add something. Sure. Go ahead. So if I can just make a make a comment, what myself and I think many people in the community have an issue with is there are often many other opportunities where very modest amounts of money are needed to make a change. For example, you know Otiha Valley Road, okay? Yep. Uh, you've got the busway there. Uh, you've got the tennis centre, you've got a big um, shopping complex and a big stadium that um, part of council has put up a proposal to demolish and there's a huge campaign against that. But anyway, let's just put that to one side. What we need to do with Otiha Valley Road is simply widen some of the existing footpaths so you can cycle off-road on a shared footpath cycleway at very modest cost. But we simply can't get that to happen because all the money's been spent on what I call gold-plated solutions that, as you've identified, sometimes there aren't too many people using. They didn't ask for them. They don't use them. And we've spent millions and millions of dollars. And the net result in many of these areas where these things have gone is we've caused congestion. And then we have the mayor suggesting we need to bring in congestion charging and I'm sitting here shaking my head and say, hang on a second. Sure, sure. We, we elected uh, Wayne Brown to give um, AT the bash because we're frustrated with, with their intransigence and their seemingly uh, unwillingness to actually provide traffic solutions. And what we're getting is, oh, we need to pay for the congestion that they've caused. Sure, and that's against the background where the alternatives just aren't there. So as you point out, you're bashing people. You're trying to encourage them to take an alternative. That might be public transport. But if the public transport doesn't get them where they want to go, when they want to go, um, conveniently, that doesn't work. No. And and I guess, I guess the other thing, and it, it's the thing that really worries me, and it's the problem that we've seen where... Um, sometimes quite a bit of parking is being removed for um, dedicated um, cycleways and these raised tables and the like, mm. is you haven't got often the parking that's needed for the survival of local businesses, particularly if you've got a dairy or something and, and you know people need to be able to pull up, um, pop in, get something, and then they're on their way. Yeah. Um, so the consequence is that businesses shut down, you don't have the ability to shop local, you then got to travel further afield to get what you want, it just makes congestion worse. We need communities that are human scale, that have got as many local facilities as possible close to where you live, so that you don't have to make such a long trip. But we seem to be making it very difficult for businesses to stay alive, and it's tough out there, very tough. Yeah, I mean, it is very tough. If, and I've, I know, have noticed a lot of the developments around that you end up with endless traffic cones, traffic management. Uh, you never know whether you can go down a road or not. 
um, in the end, you just go, you know what, I'll just shop online. And that's no no good for the stores and the store owners, and it's no good for the areas that have those things, and it just dies and dies and dies, and we end up all sitting in our apartments or our houses doing everything on Zoom and and, um, buying everything online, and we don't end up with any interaction with people. Sure, that's right. The the cone situation seems to be over the top. Far more cones than you would think practically are necessary. Often lights and, and, and the like. Um, I experienced uh, a situation just this last week where, you know, all of a sudden you're confronted with these cones. There's no signage further back causing you to detour so you can get around it. Um, when you know quite often that's practical so people get stuck in these things and it causes huge disruption huge disruption sometimes you've just got a very minor job and associated with that job you can have multiple roads in the vicinity especially when the works in the vicinity of an intersection yeah um you know causing delays and where are the checklists you know, I just don't know. One of the things that a number of councillors are asking for is exactly what is the the pricing, what is the charging around these cones? Do we pay per cone? Um, how does it work? We need to get that information because, as you've pointed out, it's costing a huge amount of money to even small jobs. Yeah, I mean, each, one, we of need to cone, get, each one of those cones costs about $200. That's right. They're expensive. Yeah. And someone's got to pay for it. And if it's the contractors, they're going to pass that on to the council. And it's the the rate payers that end up with it. But you're right, though. There's a lot of roadworks and things like like they they recently, I mean, I I was astonished to see this actually around Takapuna, just around the corner from me. They were doing roadworks and it's a main feeder road in towards the motorway. And they actually did all the work at night. And I've never seen that before, which is fantastic. But, hey, why don't we do that on other things, other on other streets, instead of all these busy roads getting torn up? At- sure, sure. I mean, probably, probably the best project that I can uh, recall when I've done a lot of the work at night was the Northern Corridor improvements in the vicinity of Constellation Drive and so on. Okay? Yeah, yeah. And Waka Katahi, NZTA, to their credit, organised the project so there was a significant amount of work done at night. And yes, if you were coming home uh, later, you'd have to do a detour and so on. Yeah. But that was far preferable to having significant delays, and they would have been huge delays during the day. So hats off to them. Yeah, I mean, Barry's Point Road was completely relayed in about three days, and that was because they did it at night. You know, but you've seen plenty of other roadworks, and, and a case in point is the is the expansion of the motorway between Otiha Valley and Constellation, where it took five years. And, of course, we had COVID in the middle of that, where, where we had the stupid government saying that these guys who were working outside by themselves on a roller and a grader had to stay at home. Uh, so it just sure. delayed Great. everything, just absolute craziness that was going on. But I mean, that was a classic one where they could have worked at night on some, especially the stuff that's not actually on the road, the the expansion Mm, works and all of those. But but it comes back, doesn't it, to AT? And this is why I was flummoxed by Wayne Brown's 
uh, supposition that somehow we can charge people to be on the motorway in the congested areas. Is he not aware that he doesn't own those roads? Uh, sure. Having said that, and we don't know precisely how it would work, but it, it's a matter of where you put the cameras that pick yeah. people up. We don't know uh, what the case is, but there's talk about putting them on the uh, on various um, off-ramps and on-ramps. And I, I guess the question is, well, you know, who owns the off-ramps and, and on-ramps? Where's the, the demarcation line between NZTA and the council? I, I think one of the things that's motivating some people on the council is to try to get some money to offset the loss of the regional fuel tax that uh, the government is is talking about. Well, but they've been stealing that from... charge is not going to be in time for that anyway, you know? No. Well, I mean, that's the thing. that The regional fuel tax has been scalped out of Aucklanders for six years by the previous government. God knows where that money's gone, but Aucklanders have paid for it. Uh, it was ostensibly supposed to pay for the folly of, you know, light rail to the airport, which, again, we don't need. You know, the Northern Busway is the answer for dealing with the airport. Uh, but where's all that money gone, and is that going to come back into Auckland? And then if you look at the congestion in the places they're talking about, like from Ellerslie, Panmure, that, that roundabout there through to Green Lane and then uh, on into the city, almost all of those places when you are getting onto the motorway to head north into the city, the on-ramps are the world's shortest on-ramps, which is what's actually causing the congestion is inappropriate design work on, on the actual motorways. And then they've got those stupid lights, which I just ignore anyway, because the police can't prosecute you if you go through those red lights. They aren't even allowed to stop you for it. And those are causing congestion that back up onto the uh, suburban roads all around those That's areas. Right. And now because of those things, the, the short on-ramps, the lights, uh, of course there's the traffic and the, and the road design all around there. We've got congestion and now it seems that we want to charge the long-suffering ratepayers even more money and there's some question over whether or not it would succeed because if I know anything about uh, human nature, as if there's going to be a tax for using that part of the motorway, most people will go, I'll go around that. And so all you've done is move the congestion from the motorway into the suburban streets now. That is correct. And the other thing that will happen is if you're trying to get more cars off the road at peak time, yes, you may get some cars off the road at peak time, but then you just spread the peak. So the peak goes for longer. And Auckland Transport is well familiar with a concept called induced traffic. What yep. that means is, in very simple terms, when you build roads, they fill up with cars. Okay? Yep. yep. Um, so if you actually make the congestion on the road less at a certain time, It'll fill up. More yep. people will use it. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me putting in place a penalty 
to change behaviour and the cost of running that penalty is really expensive because you've got to have these cameras and a whole system. Yep. It, it ain't cheap. The cost of the collection for the northern tollway, uh, the section through the tunnels and the like at the time was relatively expensive compared to what they were getting. If you want to alter somebody's behaviour, you're much better to, to try and use incentives to change that behaviour than penalties. And people respond to um, incentives. If, if I were to say to you, Cameron, I'll shout you a cup of coffee if, yep. if you change your behaviour in a particular way, there's something that triggers off in your mind and you'll think pretty seriously about that, you know? And the beauty of incentives is it's much more of a voluntary-based system, okay? Mm. Mm. So, for example, if we accept that the idea of the congestion charging is to get people um, off cars at, uh, at peak and the like, one of the things that's going to be really important to them is if they've got, say, flexible working hours, if their employer gives them incentives around that, if they can work from home, uh, there may be some form of incentive for parking at a better time. Mm. Those sorts of things really work. What they need often is something called travel planning. So if you've got a big operation, you know, a big company or the like, um, yeah. or you've got a number of employees, you actually put together a plan so that they're aware of how they can travel more efficiently, possibly using public transport or other means or car sharing. You might even put together some form of car share proposition for your for your employees and, and the like, and, and you might even incentivize it, you know? I mean, you might give them an incentive to take um, public transport by buying them a hop card with some money on it or, or the like if, if that was going to save you on parking if you're a business because the cost of parking is, is great. But the point I'm making is it's voluntary, it works, it's not clubbing people with an expense, and bear in mind that you've got a lot of people who can't alter the time that they work they may not be well off, they're going to be hit severely by this tax. It's really not fair for people that don't have an option. Imagine if you've got uh, you know, two or three jobs that you're holding down or you're a tradie or the like and you've got to get around, you've got a real problem because you're going to be hit with this and you're going to have to load it on to whoever's paying your bills. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Because human nature being what it is, if you're going to put on a tax, you may change people's behavior, but more than likely you won't because they still have to get from A to B. And that's the, even at peak hours, that's the best way to do it. But you also run the risk with the penalties that uh, businesses move out of the CBD. Businesses move, they're already and, moving out of there and you sure. go, go to, which is great for communities in, you know, like Takapuna or Albany or Whangapra, where you've got more people living in and working in particular areas. But there's a there's a vast number of people that can't do that. And so they're going to pay That's the right. tax and it's not going to reduce the congestion because people still have to get about and it's the easiest way to do it. Um, and so then sure, you end up, not only do you have the taxes and the huge cost that goes there, and you now you have to use your idea of some sort of subsidy or reward system and the cost goes up for no benefit. 
And if we if we take the Central City area, and there was a good article by Fiv Beck, she's the chief executive of um, Heart of the City, yes. just um, explaining the issues that that we've got in the city with uh, with short stay parking and the particular problem if the the downtown car park's gone. You know, there's there's a whole lot of people, especially people from outside of um, the uh, city that depend on that car, car park to get in. They might be coming in for a meal or go to the movie or some form of function or the like. And they're not going to be able to do that because parking in the central city area is getting tougher and tougher. And I guess what I would say is if you've got that car coming in and it's got a number of people in it, it's actually pretty efficient. Yeah. And if the car is an electric car and it's got a number of people in it, it may well be adding far less emissions than a bus, especially if it's a diesel bus. So yeah. cars aren't all bad. Um, it's it's a matter of how we use them, encouraging more people to share, to use the cars at the right time and use them as efficiently as we can. So one of my huge concerns is the impact of all of these things that have happened you know, the cones, the um, CRL work in the uh, central city, the works that, that have been done on Queen Street and the like, and the impact on businesses that are the lifeblood of the city. You know, the businesses, the people that work there. It's the getting incredibly rates. tough. Yeah, the people, the people that pay rates, the people that pay tax. And that's the thing, isn't it? I mean, it, it's almost like AT hates ratepayers. And they're going to do anything they can because they have this doctrinaire attitude that they know best. And, you know, we've just picked apart congestion charging in in about 15 minutes. And yet we're going to spend millions of dollars, presumably, studying this for the next couple of years so that we can get an answer that says, oh, it's too hard. But we, sure. already, know we already know that. And I guess one of the things I'd say is that we're also going to be um, out of step with with technology. And, and what do I mean by that? One of the problems that the government has got is its revenue, the money that it collects from cars by way of the tax on petrol, is going to go down as more and more people buy electric vehicles. Yep. And there's an electric vehicle revolution happening, okay? Yeah. But, but the government doesn't get any money out of the electric vehicle because it doesn't use any fuel, okay? So they need to find so, a way to do that. So they'll, they will find a way to do that because governments are rapacious and they always need other people. That's to right. So what's, what's likely is we will have some form of charging regime for cars, for electric cars, based on the kilometres that you travel, okay? Yeah, like roads and charges. the government's, yeah, and other cities are already, you know, doing this. So the government is going to have to put the technology together to do this. That has to happen sometime in the not-too-distant future. Why wouldn't you wait for that and actually get your act together rather than bringing in some other form of scheme that'll be superseded by that technology. It you doesn't make of, sense to me. No, and, and you're right. And, and just in terms of technology, 
most public transport solutions in Auckland seem to be around buses. And if you look at any time you know, outside of peak hours, there's these enormous buses that are driving around, often with ghost just, buses. Yeah, just with the driver in it, fulfilling a contractual obligation to have a bus roll down a road at a particular time. But there's nobody actually using it. It's a little bit like cycleways, right? And they've got all these cycleways That's everywhere, right. and there's no quantification of how many people use it. And the old build it and they'll come argument never works. And that the, is right. Yeah, the proof of that is the car park at Takapuya, at uh, Takapuna, that they put all this uh, uh, racks in for people with electric bikes and stuff, and it's not used by anybody. But at vast expense. And so we've got ghost buses yet, that are driving yet around. If I just, yep. Yet if I just make a comment there, the car park that has been well used, which is where the market used to be, yep. has been um, impacted on significantly. I know. You know, yep. I mean, that should have stayed. It would have enabled the market to stay. Yep. Um, that's deeply disappointing to a lot of Takapuna and North Shore people. Yeah, and so again, it's something that we didn't ask for. That's a solution for a problem that doesn't exist at vast expense. And the point I was making about technology is uh, not in the not-too-distant future, we're going to have the technology for, A, driverless cars and driverless buses. It's already happening in large cities in China where they've got the, the scale to do it. But it will become cheaper and more available and all of that. We could be looking at having a larger fleet of smaller buses, you know, if not vans, to cater for the smaller amounts of people during the day instead of these enormous diesel-sucking buses that are driving around that are empty. You're, you're absolutely right, and you're certainly right around the, uh, around the technology. Uh, Tesla are the company that are leading that. Mm. They've got one of the largest um, computers on the planet, that's receiving information from the most of the existing Teslas that are on the road. And they're all feeding into this giant uh, neural net, it's called, that's very intelligent learning technology. Their cars, certainly all the recent cars, and, and going back some years now, are all equipped with the, with the cameras and the like, so that they can have what's called full self-drive. Mm. And what is that? It means that the driver doesn't drive. The car drives itself, takes you where you want, and it's safer. It's far better than a human driver because it's got 360-degree vision. It can respond. Yep. Um, unfor unfortunately, some of the um, self-drive options that are operating aren't so good, but the Tesla one, the Tesla version which is coming and, you know, may start rolling out within, within a year, certainly within the next two years, will make a, a quantum change. Mm. And if you add to that the new vehicle that they're working on that they reckon will come in at around $25,000 um, US, yeah. that will revolutionise electric vehicles. And it will mean that if they employ something called their robo-taxi, technology, which is where that car that you own is available for other people to use mm. when you're mm. not, you could, be, you could be in the money in the sense that the car is actually not 
costing you money, it's making money. Well, that's so we've right. We've got m- more efficient cars on the road, and if those cars or small vans, as you point out, are full of people and they're operating on demand, um, it's far more efficient than a ghost bus that's driving around with hardly anybody, people, if anybody in it, apart from the driver. Doesn't the make other, sense. The other thing with the technology, too, is that these vehicles can drive very close to each other because they react far faster than a human can to anything. And That's so, right. So you can get more on the road to that. It, 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 and the key important thing here about that solution is that you can step out onto any street and summon a vehicle from where you live or just outside of where you live, get into this vehicle that will drive you there, allowing you to do things on the way, which you can't do if you're driving because you've got to concentrate on driving. And then take you exactly to where you want to go, which public transport never does, unless you have an office, Correct. you know, at the train station or the bus station, right? So, so it picks you up from where you want want to be picked up from. It takes you to where you want to go, and then it disappears and goes off and services another customer. And, and what it, you can add to that mm. is it's very cheap. So the the huge concern that I've got is that this is actually happening. The technology is here now. Companies like Tesla are in the process of building the cars, building the system. It is not going to cost the council money because it's private individuals that will make the choice based on cost because it's cheaper to buy into this. But what it does mean is the huge amount of money, and it is a vast sum of money, that we're spending on various forms of public transport may be high and dry. Exactly. It, With, it'll just be be dodo technology. Especially if we're talking about light rail or rail to the airport and things like that. Imagine if you had a dedicated, let's call it a busway because it's easy to call it that, Let's a dedicated busway that's also available for autonomous cars. Imagine that. That is correct. And if we, and if we talk about that form of busway, these buses can operate on a digital busway, okay? Um, So you don't even need the rails in the ground. That's a concept called, say, a trackless tram. So they know where to go, okay, because they can operate off GIS, um, you know, global positioning and... and, um, and uh, so on, and conceivably some current device in the road. I mean, that's the way that technology has moved, which means that um, something that's that's stuck and fixed, like a light rail um, system, which is hugely expensive, may well be um, completely unnecessary and and a big waste of money. And here's the next thing. If there's something goes wrong on the line, that train or light rail system or trolley bus or whatever can't go anywhere, right? It is stuck. That's right. Whereas a vehicle I know. that I've operates been, on I've the been, road... I've been stuck in one. Yeah. That's right. I've been stuck in a... Uh, I, I was stuck in a tram in, in Melbourne once because, you know, uh, there was an accident and mm. the tram stopped and everything on that particular line, all the trams stopped, Okay. Yep. Whereas if you've got something that's more flexible, that doesn't happen. And as you point out, other vehicles can make use of the space. And then, you know, if there is something on the digital busway, 
that causes a problem or that can reroute that onto ordinary roads around that and service carries on. So, sure, you know, that's right. it, it seems that we have this Alice in Wonderland behaviour in government departments and in AT to build fanciful, expensive solutions based on old technology that'll be superseded faster than we can build it. Sure. And the particular concern I've got is when I'm in council meetings, I raise these issues. So I've said to Auckland Transport when they were bringing up this time of use um, congestion charging, I've raised it over light rail, I've raised it over the Mm. um, expenditure in buses and the like, and I've said to them, have you modelled what's happening? Have you modelled the change in technology around these new electric vehicles that have got the ability to drive themselves? What does this mean? What does it mean? How does it affect your investments? Have you taken this into consideration? And the answer is no, it hasn't been done. So that's a huge concern because we're talking about really big sums of money. And you would know that if there's one thing we're short of right now, we're short of money. Watercare is hitting us up for very large sums of money for projects. Transport is hitting us up for huge sums of money, you know, in the hundreds of millions. Mm. We've got big bills from the storms. You know, our healthy waters department has got to spend money upgrading um, stormwater. And these are huge sums of money that our council doesn't have, and the only place that we can go is is government to um, to get some money to to tide us over and look after us. And they don't we're have not it either. Have, and they don't have it either. So we've we've got a major problem right now. Yeah, I think technology is the is the solution in whatever form. And the way you can do that is either two ways. You can go and spend on technology yourself, or you can create an environment that supports technology that welcomes companies here to use New Zealand or Auckland, in this case, as a test bed. Because Or do both. Or, or do, do both. both. Yeah, but, but I'm and, really opposed and, to... And certainly, sure, and, and certainly if I can pick up on that, I've, yeah. said, to, um, I've, I've said to Auckland Transport, look, why wouldn't you reach out to Tesla? Um, exactly. They'll come, and and they will outline what you can do. Okay, um, they'll also outline how to solve the the energy problems because they've got these big, um, you yep. know, giga battery packs and the like that they can put in, yep. so that as you electrify the buses and as you electrify the um, cars, you've got these batteries that have taken advantage of the power that's available off peak to um, help charge things at peak. Now, they've certainly got the the computers and the capacity to model those sorts of things and provide those sorts of solutions. So why aren't we reaching out to companies like that mm. to well, give exactly. us some suggestions? And that may not cost us any money at all. No, it might not cost us anything other than changing the regulatory environment, which is some legislation or some bylaws or, or whatever, that's easy and cheap to do. It's a whole lot cheaper than building 
rail lines and tunnels all the way to the airport when no one's going to use it. No one has ever done anything like that successfully in the world ever. But we always seem to think that we can do it better than everywhere else. Sure. And and you're right that um, Auckland and New Zealand is a good test bed for doing stuff. You know, particularly if you're a tech company and you want to try something out. Um, so we should be saying to them, look, um, you know, let's, Let's let's do this. I've been taking a lot of interest in electrification, especially with the Gulf Harbour Ferry Service, mm. because the government's pumped some money into Auckland Transport to build some um, electric ferries. But um, I was told that you couldn't run an electric ferry up to um, Gulf Harbour. Mm. But um, lo and behold, myself and other people got in touch with a company that's running an electric ferry now down in Wellington. It's running successfully. It's been more successful than what they figured. Mm. And we we got those people up. They checked out the Gulf Harbour route, and they've told Auckland Transport, yes, you can run an electric um, ferry. It can fast charge either end. Yep. It works. And it can operate on foiling technology, so that lifts it up above the water. Yep. So it's it's Reduces more um, efficient. Yep. Yeah, and um, of course it would offer a quicker trip than the current 50 minutes, and you could get down to 40 minutes. That means that the ferry has got a quicker turnaround, so you get a bit of return on the on the asset. Yes. And of course, as soon as people can get a 40-minute trip rather than a 50-minute trip, a lot yep. more people are going to use it. Well, and all of a sudden... Cheaper and faster than the car. Sure. And the particular thing about, say, taking a ferry like, um, like I'm suggesting is unlike a bus or a train, you can work on the ferry. You know, you can have a chat to your friends. You can have a cup of coffee. You can have a meeting if you want with some other other people, you can use your laptop. So your productivity is improved an awful lot. Yet Auckland Transport at this point are looking to cancel that service altogether, which is fundamentally unfair. And that is not something that they're planning to do for any other comparable ferry route in Auckland. So We've had thousands of people submit through the regional public transport plan in good faith, many of them on the Gulf Harbour Ferry Service. Yeah. These people know that the ferry service can operate better, that in the medium to long term we can have electric ferries operating, which is what they're doing elsewhere. But for some reason, they're singling out Gulf Harbour and treating it differently, and that's hugely unfair. And why is that? It's really wow. hard to fathom. It doesn't yeah. add up. Well, you know, talk to Greg Sayers, and, and it, it seems that if you're on the outer ring of the city, you're an afterthought. And that's always been the problem. Everything seems to be centric around the CBD, which is old-fashioned thinking. Um, so we need people like you to be raising this and bringing up these saying, whoa, hang on a second, let's have a look at some alternative solutions. Let's look at some technology, let's look at these things, because if we don't, we are going to spend an inordinate amount of money and not actually achieve any solution this side of 10 years. That's right. That's right. 
will be left behind. Yeah. And on that note, Wayne, thank you for your time. I think we've covered quite a lot of stuff, including around congestion and transport solutions, and I'll certainly enjoy having you on the show again. Yeah, thanks for the chat, Cameron, and thank you to your listeners. Well done. No problem, Wayne. You're welcome anytime. Thanks a lot. Wayne is one of those genuine nice guys, and there's a reason he keeps getting elected. And as you can hear, he has practical solutions for Auckland's transport issues. Let's hope he can get heard around the council table. Tell me your thoughts on what Wayne had to say by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. Our text machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Shane Jones is back as the New Zealand First MP. The top four on New Zealand First list are all Maori, and Shane, of course, is one of them. But he's not some weak-kneed woke womble, so let's see what he says about politics in general, and I'll hit him up on what he thinks about congestion charging too. This could be entertaining. He joins me now. Welcome back to The Crunch, Shane. Good afternoon. Hey, greetings, folks. Kilda from the far north. Obviously, we are uh, eagerly anticipating the successful outcome of the coalition negotiations, but as everyone has been told, they're covered in a cone of silence and it would be an act of treachery to uh, bust that cone. But look, there's a heck of a lot happening and some of it very um, sad and uh, quite debilitating out here in the community. Mm. So you're looking forward to cracking a few heads, aren't you, Shane, when you get back in, into Parliament? Yeah, you know, it's not just the bureaucracy, uh, the ethos, uh, certainly in our region in Northland, has deteriorated. I mean, nowhere was this more evident than this wretched crime that a couple of lowlifes committed uh, up here in the Bay of Islands where the Māori Battalion Museum, which is located on the National Treaty of Waitangi grounds, uh, was the site of a, of a grievous example of um, thievery where a, an art piece, I guess you'd say a taonga, an heirloom, was stolen by a young couple who were using their child to help um, effect this uh, thieving. But sadly for them, the whole incident has been caught on uh, CCTV. It's in the hands of the police, but it's a message to the north. If we let this feral, lawless uh, type of cockroach mentality spread, then we're going to ruin it in the north for all the good Bano who supported the erection of the Māori Battalion Museum, and we must not let these isolated examples and these cockroaches blight the name of uh, the good Māori of the North. Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? We're seeing, or we've seen over the last six years, this uh, rise in these type of crimes. They're rather shameless, uh, especially in Auckland. You're seeing, you know, ram raids and violence and 
uh, all of this nonsense. And the previous government had an attitude of it's okay, uh, where they just misunderstood and, you know, we need to give these people some hugs. But what we actually really need to do yeah. is give, give, give them a bit of uh, old-fashioned justice. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's one of the motivations, I think, as to why people uh, flocked to the cause of the current parties that are mm. um, endeavouring to put together a government. But look, I've I, I got to remind everyone, this doctrine of decolonisation, which has been popularised by the Green Party and the Labour Party, yeah. has no place in the day-to-day -day lives of Kiwis. The uh, decolonization, United Nations, uh, indigenous rights, and all of that uh, witch's brew will only end up dividing, will only end up polarizing, and will end up weakening the bonds that define us as Kiwis. And uh, people are taking advantage of that. People are using that type of ideology to excuse modern day uh, woeful behaviour. I mean, how come the, the 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 Green Party consistently rails against people who are dead and who can't answer for what they did in, in their period of time of history, but the people who are alive doing uh, wicked things, they're continually excusing their behaviour. It's it's bizarre. It's a type of pathology, and the less we see of it, the better I'm going to feel. We're seeing that from the from Te Party Maori as well. It's quite grating and quite racist, the rhetoric that's coming out of the likes of Rawari Waititi and Debbie Nawira Packer, where we see this ridiculous situation like they appear in debates and they talk about the National Party being pale, male and stale. And then, you know, other politicians being pale, male and stale. And then you get a politician who wins his seat, right? Cameron Brewer, for example, um, not a bad guy. Um, I've known him for a, a number of years, good mate of Banksy's. And he says, jokingly, the pale, male and stale has won this electorate. And there's Radio New Zealand getting all outraged and talking about the National Party being under the hammer uh, for its lack of diversity. And, and I'm sitting here thinking, well, hang on a second. We, we just had an election. And everybody had party lists, the ACT Party, New Zealand First, National Party, and the voters said we kind of like those three and voted in a majority of people that wasn't all woke and womble-like with this sort of, you know, rhetoric. And, I, and it just staggers me that they're allowed to get away with it, the, both the media and the politicians that are, are hurling these things around. Mm, I think Winston nailed it when he said, look, the 14th of October and the special votes had mm. delivered a mandate and have delivered a legitimate result. Now, it's, it's, it's not only the example that you've um, identified, but Debbie Packer, she marshaled the resistance against the Iron Sands initiative off the coast of Taranaki. Mm. And one of the most uh, egregious things was that the courts decided to agree with their analysis that there was some sacred custom or tikanga that should be applied 37 kilometres off the coast of Taranaki, many metres below the ocean, extracting iron sands. Now, the fact that the courts are doing that only emboldens and empowers that anti-development, anti-capitalistic, 
an anti-growth agenda. And we're going to count, we're going to have three years of those banshee-like calls designed to obstruct and quite frankly, erode the confidence of overseas people maintaining their level of interest in terms of investing in our forestry sector, our natural resources sector, our infrastructure sector. And there's always been a tradition of a mix of local and international capital. Uh, for example, most of the pine trees growing in New Zealand are owned by um, foreign interests. Yeah. And, and I think that's the real danger. And, and uh, sadly, that type of um, anti-growth ideology and that type of um, sort of midget-like thinking has been cloaked in the, in, in, in the korowai of Maoridom. But in actual fact, they don't represent exclusively Maori. They've got 87,000 votes. And many of those 87,000 votes themselves don't even come from Māoridom. So we're going we're gonna to hear uh, lots of loud noises and lots of banshee behaviour, no doubt in Parliament, but most of that volume will be inversely related to their ability to influence what needs to take place, which is to reset the economic, social and uh, development trajectory of New Zealand. New Zealand is rich in natural resources. I mean, I, I remember you standing on the stage holding your, your head in your hands when Jacinda Ardern announced that we were going to no longer uh, explore for oil and gas. And, uh, you, you know, it's kind of famous, the look that you had on your face. You had to do it because, you know, you were a, a, a minister and that was the decision that the Prime Minister had made. But it's a, a myopic decision that's cost this country probably billions and billions of dollars of investment. Are we going to be able to reverse some of that? Well, um, obviously the National Party have uh, campaigned for a reversal. I went down to New Plymouth and um, stood shoulder to shoulder with them. The uh, The decision that was taken you know, five or six years ago, that's now come and gone. The most important thing, I think, for Kiwis when they look at um, energy and electricity is are we managing the risks and is our supply secure? Mm. Because I know that Megan Woods, she did initiate a body of work um, in the South Island. And in fairness to the person that's been leading it, Keith Turner, he's arguably New Zealand's most well-known energy uh, strategist. But whether or not that project survives, I mean, that'll be up to the new government. But the most important thing is we've got to keep the lights on and the people that are um, antagonistic about further natural resource development or even the maintenance of the current coal mining operations in New Zealand, you know, are hypocritically silent every time a truckload of Indonesian coal rumbles down the uh, southern motorway into the Waikato. And I mean, that's one of the dirty little secrets of hypocrisy amongst the Pharisees of the climate change movement. We've got many of the resources within our own country, and we've got our young people all departing in many cases to Australia to dig up Australia, yet we're endowed and blessed with our own mix of natural resources. I mean, look at that case yeah. over there in, uh, in the Waikato. I mean, they, they want to put two uh, largely unseen, unknown pipes in the ground. This is this uh, Oceania yes. uh, mining interest. They've been given authority to do it on a public road a publicly owned road. The Hauraki District Council has given them authority to do it. And now we've got people uh, not only attacking it, but saying it's going to destroy 
the environment of the frog. I think it's called Hershey's frog or a name like that. The reality is the wild pigs are eating those frogs every single day of the week. Captain Cook is consuming, Captain Cookers are consuming the little rare frog. You can't blame the mining industry if in actual fact there are forestry trucks rumbling around that part of the country, I'm sure yep. occasionally they run a frog over. So, I mean, I'm, I'm confident that uh, once uh, the new, our new system is bedded in, that there'll be a lot more balance and common sense, and people can have confidence that they'll actually be able to bring their children up and afford to live in regional New Zealand. Well, I mean, that's the thing. In re- we've got oil everywhere, you know, including in Northland. We've got coal everywhere. And we seem to have these people that are saying, no, that all has to stay in the ground. And meanwhile, we're importing all of that stuff. And, you know, I can remember back in Muldoon's days, everybody criticised the building of the Clyde Dam and they criticised the building of Motunui and they criticised, you know, the, the extension of Marsden Point. Everyone opposed what Muldoon was doing, but it was rather far-sighted in retrospect when we sit here and, and all of these wombles that are driving around in a cloud of smug in their electric cars are having those electric cars powered by all of those projects that Robert Muldoon built. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the resilience of the country, I'm sure it was a motivation for Prime Minister Muldoon all those decades ago. Mm. And uh, the importance of resilience, it hasn't diminished, mate. I mean, we do have rare earth minerals in New Zealand. Uh, we just probably haven't had a mandate. Uh, we haven't been encouraged uh, in terms of whoever's the government of the day to work with industry and uncover what's the full potential. But, yeah. look, I encourage everyone to go and look at, they'll probably put themselves to sleep, but go and look at our economic data. There's a thing called the current account deficit means you're not exporting enough and you're continually importing things into your country and you have to go into debt in order to afford those things. Well, we're going to have to take a a, a significantly different approach so that we extract more value from uh, nature's bounty, which surrounds us. And there's only 5 million of us, although I have to say, I was astounded how quickly our population has gone from 5 billion to 5.2 million. Yeah. And I presume a lot of them are short-term uh, migrants and sadly though we are continuing to lose a lot of our young Kiwis well certainly between the age of you know 20 odd up to uh, late 30s early 40s and I put that down to a deterioration in the ethos of the country and yep. also a um, shrinkage of um, economic opportunity and we need to uh, enlarge those opportunities and reward people and make it worthwhile to continue to be committed to living in the regions or wherever you want to live in New Zealand. If you look at New Zealand's history, we've got a reputation as a can-do nation. You know, we've had some amazing innovators, the Hamilton jet engine for boats. Uh, we've got guys who have invented motorbikes. Uh, we've got Fisher and Paykel, this Fisher and Paykel story. We had to invent things because we basically lived at the arse end of the world and if we wanted these things to be in the first world states, we needed to do it ourselves. But it seems that progressively over the last, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, we've become a can't-do nation. And we have a lot of people out there who are telling us what we can't do, and nobody's telling us what we can do or should do. Is New Zealand first going to try and change that attitude to get that 
can-do attitude back? Yeah, I think all the parties have a shared commitment to declogging the system. Mm. I mean, whether it's the building industry, whether it's road making, uh, other types of infrastructure, the statutory approvals process has become so bogged down that it's actually now um, holding the economic fortunes of the country to ransom. Let's just look at Mount Messenger. Uh, Mount Messenger yeah. is a road in an obscure part of New Zealand, northern Taranaki. Yep. I'm advised that there's about four to five years of Supreme Court litigation before that road can go ahead, only because of a tiny group who themselves are standing against not only NZTA, but they're standing against the Ngati Tama people who live around there. And this is a case where the sensible Māoris actually want the road built tomorrow. But no, you've got this tiny and flexible and transited group with no mandate who believe that their value hierarchy is of greater importance than the rest of the country. And just that single example shows why the whole approvals process and law around infrastructure has to be revisited and has to be inverted. We've got to stop these tiny minorities and their semi-religious uh, fueled rhetoric from holding the rest of us to ransom. That, that Mount Messenger group have been in the media the last couple of days moaning about the price of pies being supplied to the workers on Fridays. I mean, that's how petty they are. And it's just holding up things. But I look at the real culprit of all of this and lay the blame fairly and squarely at the feet of two people, Simon Upton and Jeffrey Palmer, because they're the architects of the Resource Management Act that is stopping development. If you look at um, an alternative, what we've got to do, in my view, and certainly in building, uh, we've got to restore authority and opportunity back to people to just get on and do things. Now, housing has so many obstacles. I was given an example the other day up north that they had to have a geotech report on where they were putting a house. Now, the place where the house is going is surrounded by a whole lot of other houses. And that geotech report adds delay. And then these uh, building inspectors, they have to come back and do endless types of inspections. And what we're better off doing is just trusting. If you've got a registered builder, you should have just maybe one inspection and trust him, trust the plumber, trust the drain layer, trust the sparky. They can self-regulate their work. And if it uh, buggers up, then they're personally responsible. Uh, I, I genuinely feel that that's the type of uh, reset that a lot of um, uh, Kiwis want to see take place. And presumably that's what David Seymour and the ACT Party have in mind. Uh, with their deregulatory drive, uh, I, I think that there's definitely a case and it's overdue for that type of um, liberalisation. Yeah, there's some real synergies, isn't there, between the ACT Party's policies and New Zealand First. And you know, from my perspective, looking on at watching the negotiations, it seems there's been a significant thawing of the relationship between uh, David Seymour and Winston Peters. and. David Seymour's perhaps realised that the two of those parties, the ACT Party and New Zealand First, can actually get some things happening to force the National Party, which I've always described as the party of the status quo. They never want to actually do anything. They just want to manage it slightly more efficiently. 
Um, and it seems from the outside looking in that you guys are actually telling Christopher Luxon, we want to do some things. We need to fix this country and we're on the same page as this. Is that a fair assessment that I've just been observing from the outside? Yeah, I think that people should have confidence that the 6% and the 8% of the population that supported the two smaller parties, mm. it's not lost on us that, um, number one, that's a, a privilege to hold that level of support, but number two, that type of support has to be transformed into uh, robust and um, measurable activity. And if we just end up like Nick Smith and the others of the past, just putting layer upon layer. Like, I mean, the crowning folly was when Nick Smith introduced, uh, I think they're called Pono Whakahaere. It's a Māori term that means to jointly organise things. But anyway, this was their attempt at that stage to uh, get councils to work um, with the local hapus. But it only ended up constipating the system. It's ended up uh, probably in many cases... Uh, people having to just load on more costs to get bog-standard projects underway. And it's, it's, it not only does that give a very bad name to the vast majority of Māori, who don't even know this stuff is happening, quite frankly, yeah. Yeah. but it enriches a tiny elite to manipulate those positions. I mean, I, I heard the other day that um, the Ngāti Whātua people in Auckland from um, Bastien Point, mm. they are now saying that because the current site of the Epsom Teachers Training College is becoming vacant due to restructuring within the Auckland University, and that site apparently, according to them, has a, has a name from Hawaii, therefore they should be entitled to buy it. I mean, this is the level of brown mail that we're now seeing. Just because uh, one tribe, and that, that tribe's fighting with all the other tribes of Thames and Hodaki and Auckland anyway, mm. uh, that, that's, that's a level of conflict I, I just cannot make sense of. Meanwhile, we've opened up the gates of immigration and heaps of people are coming from the rest of the world and they're just getting on with trying to make a life here in Auckland and New Zealand. Meanwhile, we've got these two tribal groups spending millions of dollars in the court system and now invoking... Um, ancient stories from Hawaii to prove that they've got an entitlement to take over some vacant land that is publicly owned. Now, that type of ideology and those types of excesses were allowed to grow unchecked, and it actually is not only um, undermining, but it's causing uh, people to say, mate, I've had a guts full of this country if it's going to be run like that. I mean, that's the thing. It's, it's kind of a looter mentality. There's no actual value that's going into that. And it seems to be just being taken. And you're right. People are sitting there saying, this is ridiculous. I've even coined a term for it called peak Maori, where we're sort of kind of, we're over this. There's these people that are making outrageous demands based on nothing but fairy tales. And it's refreshing to hear people like yourself and Winston and others saying, no, this is this is just bollocks, and we need to stop that and this nonsense of co-governance. And then we had you know, Toe Henere throwing his toys out of the cot a couple of weeks ago because Auckland Council didn't vote to have Maori wards, even though he's on the Maori statutory board and getting paid handsomely to do that. It's that looter mentality that's really annoying the vast amount of the population both Maori and everybody else. 
Yeah, yeah, but a lot of that is traceable back to people believing that they have a statutory basis, they have a legal right to uh, perpetrate uh, this type of cultural looting. And that's what I mean. We've got to have a reset, a legal reset. See, my view is that when a hapu or a tribe has a Treaty of Waitangi settlement, then good. Get on with uh, developing whatever endowment you've got and develop the people and contribute to the nation. Mm. I have a very simple view about that. Now, other people have said, okay, now that the treaty has been applied to trying to uh, restore property rights, let's now uh, weaponize the treaty as a basis for carving up on the franchise of ancestry, access to health resources, social development resources. And then, oh, let's go even further. Uh, let's now uh, weaponize the treaty so that it is available to bludgeon and change and completely renovate the nature of our constitutional governance in New Zealand. That's what's happening with the Green Party. Yep. That's what's been happening uh, with uh, the Māori Party, and it's certainly what's been driven by uh, Nanaia Mahuta of the Labour Party. So you've gone from property rights, uh, a, a quite a, a quite an awful experience of trying to reorder the health system on the basis of ancestry, and now you've got it uh, coming into whether or not a governance based on the ballot box and democracy is a system that should remain in New Zealand. I mean, it is such a mad and defective type of thinking, I have to pinch myself as to where on earth are we as a country if this is the overarching narrative that a group of politicians are now pitching. And um, I think that the new government, and I think uh, Winston and myself, um, we're going to play a key role in challenging that and causing it to be washed away when the tide changes. I mean, that's the thing we've got, you know, people like, Willie Jackson saying, oh, yeah, well, democracy's overrated. We need to do this. And it's all based on a rather heroic assumption that the treaty was signed between Queen Victoria and disparate Maori tribes on an equal basis with the Empress of India, the head of the British Empire. And it's that's not what the treaty was. But there's this heroic assumption that it was this Co-governance, it's come out of nowhere and and the media have pushed it because they also had their public interest journalism fund that said they had to subscribe to that particular point of view. And so you brainwashed a whole segment of society, a large segment of society who thinks that's what the treaty says. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not just been pushed um, by a small group of Maori academics. It's also in existence because of an echo chamber. And it's almost like there's a, there's a professional caste in New Zealand. I don't know whether they're bureaucrats or in the, judici in the judiciary. It's like a type of self-flagellation that um, the country can't move forward until such time there's some massive park air atonement or some crazy idea. Meanwhile, the rest of the world is just moving on. There's only five odd million of us here and we're in a very isolated part of the Pacific. And yeah. um, look, I, I'm just astounded how far uh, this uh, falsehood has traveled and how far they've managed to penetrate, really, the corridors of power, whether or not power 
is to be found in the narratives of the media or the recesses of the bureaucracy or even some of the unexplainable uh, decisions that the courts are coming up with. And uh, I've given you one example, an example that uh, you can't have mining off the coast of New Zealand unless some semi-religious Pharisees get together and define what's the appropriate Maori custom. It's absolute rubbish. And what Maori custom are you talking about? You're 37 kilometres off the edge of one of the most treacherous parts of the New Zealand ocean environment. There's a reason they call it Te Moana Tāpokapokara Tāwhaki, the billowing rough ocean of Tāwhaki. Now, anyone who's got the engineering smarts and the risk appetite to go out there and try and make money, I say good on them. And if there is a problem, those decisions ought to be made on the basis of economics and science. They should not be made on the basis of reprising versions of tikanga Māori. There's no tikanga uh, in Taranaki uh, related to extracting minerals 37 kilometres, God knows how many metres, under the ocean. And the fact that the court system, I mean, that's a political debate, okay? And people are entitled to have a view that, okay, politically and morally, we think we have a, a customary perspective that ought to um, hold sway. But in actual fact, the court has got no business importing those political debates, or indeed even inventing space for those debates to trump science and economics. No wonder the country's current account deficits in the bloody doo-doo. Yeah, and the, and the other thing too is, I mean, take you for example, right? You, you uh, are part Croatian, but it seems mm-hmm. that the only part of of the makeup of people that's important is the Maori part, and everything else can we just forget and ignore that. You know, you're part Croatian, and Winston's part Scottish, and you know all the rest of it. it we just forget all of that, and we'll just label everybody Maori because of whatever percentage of DNA is there. It seems ludicrous that we're just ignoring all of the melting pot that exists in New Zealand that we all went along to get along and we were pretty happy about things up until about 10 years ago and then it all started getting nasty. And it, it staggers me that we've moved from that and, and I don't know how we can get back to that. Well, I think that, I mean, the debates that we were a part of those were the debates of uh, recovering rights and resources. Yeah. And, and they were noble pursuits. They were noble yes. pursuits because when you've got rights, then people are obliged to respect and enable you to protect your rights and use your rights, okay? Yeah. But this cultural renaissance journey has, has ended up in, in weird spaces, not the least of which is changing the country's governance. And, and I, I kind of feel that, we're approaching the high tide mark of that. I genuinely believe we'll be able to push it back. But I'll tell you what's going to be very hard to push back are the ingrained attitudes amongst too many of the hapu uh, leaders in the diet that's been fed to too many of our young people about a victimhood mentality. And that's going to be an extraordinarily challenging thing to reverse. But it has to be, mate, because no nation, no population can prosper unless we're all taught, incentivized, and encouraged to put into practice that old biblical adage by the sweat of thy brow. Yeah, exactly. Because we've got this attitude in New Zealand where we like to describe, you know, particular communities. They always talk about you know, the gay community or this community or that community and how they're vulnerable. And as a result of them being vulnerable, 
we now need to pour a lot of resources and uh, money and all of that into these vulnerable communities. But if you keep telling people they're vulnerable and essentially losers, it becomes self-fulfilling. Yeah, whether or not we've imported that rationalization from the states, I, I, I haven't really dwelt on it far enough to work it out. But I'll tell you one thing. I was absolutely astounded when I read the court decision when the High Court judge enabled the visa allocated to Posey Parker to stand. You may recall there were people that went to court to prevent Posey Parker coming to New Zealand. Yeah. And um, at the time, there was quite a lot. There was a, great, there was a brouhaha about it. So I thought, let's go and have a look at that decision. I was astounded that the High Court judge, and it's I'm old-fashioned, you tend to have a great deal of respect for the inherent jurisdiction of the High Court's part of our constitutional apparatus. And, mate, if you ever look at the language there, it plays uh, straight into the playbook that there are groups of uh, people, including those that didn't want Posey Parker into the country, who are extraordinarily vulnerable, and their well-being in every sense of the word was at stake. I mean, it was uh, it was a very disappointing decision. They got the right result, but uh, if you look at um, a lot of the language in the text, I, I, I had a rather bloody sad feeling when I thought that uh, our high court was even buying into the sense of victimhood. Well, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Because there is a sense of victimhood that there's vulnerable communities and they need to be protected from hurty words. You know, you think back on the days of Muldoon, he was called Piggy Muldoon by almost everybody. These days he'd need to have a safe space and, you know, maybe a cuddle toy and, and a blanket. I don't know what's happened to society. You know, in 1944, we had 18-year-olds charging off landing craft into the beaches of Normandy into the face of machine guns and artillery and all of that. Nowadays, 18-year-olds need safe spaces and we have to be mindful of their pronouns. It's it's bizarre yeah, that we've no, no, become weak. Uh, <laughs> so, look, yeah, anyhow, going forward, I'm uh, going to try and maintain a, a strong focus on economic empowerment. And uh, I know it sounds a bit old-fashioned, um, reaching back as often we do, um, plucking bits of Shakespeare or plucking wee verses out of the Bible, but, boys, a lot of wisdom. But when you boost your um, education, when you boost your confidence, you've got choices. And when you've got choices, you have the ability to uh, do substantial things with your life, the life of your family, the life of your household, the life of the community where you live. But mm. if you wait endlessly to be fed with a spoon from Wellington, then sadly, your choices just went out the window. Well, that's the thing. I remember uh, Ronald Reagan said the nine most dangerous words in the English language are, I'm from the government, I'm here to help you. <laughs> oh, well, there's a better government on the way, mate. <laughs> well, we look, we look forward to it, uh, Shane, and thank you this afternoon for spending the time to talk to me. And let's hope you get in there and um, lay about the woke wombles in the bureaucracy. Okay, great to have the court at all. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you. You never know what you're going to get with Shane, and he didn't disappoint. And I'm glad he's going to be shaking up the woke and the Wellington bureaucrats. Don't forget to send comments on Shane's interview to inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. RCR is on a mission to revive honest media. 
and now you too can be an integral part of it by joining the RCR Foundation Members Club. Receive exclusive benefits only available to club members, including your own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions, along with our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, that's delivered to your email box every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members to see how you can join the mission that's making a difference. Making a difference. Altex Machine is now live. Send us your thoughts by texting your message to 2057. That's 2057. So get in touch with us now. Right, now it's time for Cam's Buddies. It's a favourite of all of you out there. And this week, we'll find out what they think of Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown's idea to look at introducing congestion charging. My producer has them all lined up and ready to go. Let's hear what Cam's Buddies have to say about congestion charging. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Paul. Oh, hi, Cam. How are you? Oh, box of birds. I've got a, a little vexing issue for for you today. Um, Last week, the Auckland Council voted to investigate congestion pricing. Now, this is Wayne Brown's council, and he was elected to bash Auckland Transport, and he seems to be toadying up to them to want to introduce congestion uh, charging. What do you think about that? Um, I quite like the idea of congestion charging. I think if if congestion charging means that I can get in and out of the city easily at peak times, I'm happy to pay. I think that's an absolute disaster, though, for the businesses that are in town and for the um, the people at large who really can't afford it because, basically, it's a persecution of the poor. And I don't think it's fair, whilst it may suit me, um, because I can afford, if you charge me that, it would make no difference to me, I wouldn't notice it. But I think it's actually a, a very poor scheme. And um, I just look and think there's some um, woke people that have got an agenda that's trying to stop cars from flowing and they, they manage to bring it out and everything. Yeah, that's I mean, that's my, the, my sort of starting thought on it. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Like they, they're wanting to, uh, the, I guess, the main uh, area they want to charge for is between Panmu, uh, the Panmu, uh, not Panmu, Penrose. Uh, roundabout there, all the way through to Green Lane. They've got uh, terrible problems with getting on the motorway there in any case because they've got very short on-ramps and they've got those stupid traffic lights. So they've kind of caused this, the congestion and now they want to charge us for it. Yes. Um, so what they do is they manage to put a cycleway at the end of where you come off of Nelson Street there and that takes the lane. And they put um, cycleways in all sorts of different places. That they don't seem to have much traffic on them, but they take a lane. And down the bottom of town, they've taken a lane. Um, and they do all this to say it's better for you. I think there's a sadist in there that's actually his whole job is to try and force us out of our cars onto our push bikes or onto our scooters. doesn't matter if you have a head injury. doesn't matter if you're 80 years old. doesn't matter if you have three kids. What we have to do is you must be on a bike and let that be a lesson to you. And I just look at this and I think these, it, it's nearly madness 
I think that um, they they managed to do a number of things that who knows if a sane person is actually enacting these. Oh, and it, you know, that part of the motorway from Penrose to Green Lane, every person who wor- who lives in South Auckland who works in or around those areas or if going further, that could be going further north up, up to, you know, Albany or, or some of the industrial areas, uh, they're going to have to travel through that and, and they're, you know, suggesting $5 each way. So that's $10 in, onto a, the costs of a poor person along with the exorbitant fuel costs that we've got because we can't seem to plan that either. Yes, well, see, that $50 that that would bring, that's often life and death and food to many people who happen to live south and have to live where their skills can get them a job. And I I think it's appalling. I think that to do that to our citizens is just, I mean, they, they want Auckland to be the most livable city. It sounds like it's the least livable city to me when and you have these traffic um, carry-ons, and that piece of um, motorway is, as you say, the, the on-ramps are short, and it's just, it's beyond the pale, and, and it might alleviate, because I think um, in some other cities, um, they talked about there would be um, those congestion charges knocked 15% of the traffic down. Well, if you plan, like our city's got 1.8 million. If it had 10 million people, cities work with 10 million people, not 1.8. So it's just poor planning, in my view. Well, in that particular block of area, it's it's blocked up on the weekends too. When I come back from church on Saturday, I'm always doing naught miles an hour on the car park known as the as the uh, Southern Motorway, especially through that area exactly. there. Yeah, and that's at 2 or but 3 o'clock right. in the afternoon. Yes, it's all right. We've got a bus lane there, though. That's empty, so that's important. Mm. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. We've got and bus I, lanes. I just look and... I'm thinking those congestion charges and, and that piece of – why don't we make six lanes north and six lanes south from Wangarei to Hamilton as a minimum and then five lanes east to west, so from Henderson – out to Howick or Maraitoa Beachlands so that that makes our city the most livable city because you can get places without all this carry-on. Exactly. I mean, it's it's solving a problem that they created in the first place. And then we hear, you know, in the news that these raised pedestrian crossings cost the council $450,000 each. Mm. A couple of days ago, I was listening to Andrew Cooksina talk about how they're trying to get rid of the downtown car park and selling it to um, Precinct or someone like that. And um, they'll net the the council um, less than $50 million. And if they use one of Queen Street, you know, there's a support Queen Street group. Yes. To use their idea, they'll make $250 million. I mean, it just... And, and there's a couple of people in the council who... They think that they have to have everybody walking, no matter who you are, and and all these things going this way. It's it's if they were to plan properly, and if they were to, it's probably for them out and ask the people what what do they want, it, it, who's prepared to get out of their car and catch the bus because lots of the young people do catch buses, but they also our city's not designed because there's buses that 
take you where you don't want to go at times you don't want to get, get there with people you don't like. Yeah, exactly. And that's exactly what I've said. Andrew Crook Senior knows a thing about properties and and how to solve these problems. It seems to be smart for him, for the, for the council to actually start listening to people like him. Well, he knows the value of what they've got. And if the ratepayers are sponsoring um, the precinct by the term of $200 million, when they're saying they're desperate for money and they want to sell the airport and shares and those sorts of things. And I'm not mm. saying selling the airport shares is right or wrong, but I'm saying if, you, if you're giving $200 million away because um, someone that's wanting to be woke and say um, less car parks is better, uh, I think that that car park asset down the bottom of town is, a, is an absolute jewel. And I also think that cars travelling into town via that piece of congested road need somewhere to park when they get there. Yeah, exactly. So it sounds like they have no idea of what the actual issue is, or nor any sensible solutions that'll work it out. No, but they, they do know how to be woke and green. And, and when I say green, I mean red, so watermelonish. Yeah. And they know how to come up with the silliest ideas possible to affect the most number of people and have them um, as inconvenienced as possible. Now, it's okay for me. I drive at different times of the day. I don't go in traffic. I make a point of it because I don't need to. I'm, I'm, I don't need money like most of the citizens, but I do feel for, for them. I feel for them terribly. And on that note, we'll uh, wrap that up and I'll go to the next call. Thanks, Paul. Thanks, Cam. Take care. Hello, Jack. Welcome to Cam's Buddies. Hey, Cam. i got a, a little bit of a... a a uh, teaser for you today, mine teaser. Uh, the Auckland Council last week voted to investigate deploying uh, some mechanism, they don't know what it is or how they're going to do it, uh, to tax <clears throat> Auckland drivers for driving on the motorway through a couple of busy uh, areas, one being from Penrose to Green Lane and the other being somewhere out west. What's your thoughts on congestion charging and is Wayne Brown barking up the wrong tree here. Wayne Brown was an engineer about the same time I was. In retrospect, I think I was better than him. I never met him, but I had uh, high hopes um, for his engineering ability, but I think he's forgotten all about it. Well, to answer your question, though, rubbish. He needs to sort out other things before he even thinks about that, like the maintenance on the roads. Stop the flooding. When did you last see a cesspit cleaning truck running around? When did you last see a road sweeper running around the roads. Now, when I was an engineer, I'd see them all the time. And once you're an engineer, it never leaves your thoughts. I look around, I've never seen one. Yet we have constant flooding. Who's going to get rid of the road cones? Everywhere I go, I see more and more road cones. And I can tell you, having worked in the council myself, it's so top-heavy now, he needs to actually get rid of all of the top guys that are doing nothing and get more people down there that actually do the work. That way we might get a better flow of traffic. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Wayne Brown was elected on a platform of dealing to Auckland Transport and readjusting their priorities, and it seems like he's drunk the Kool-Aid from Auckland Transport and wants to Im implement all of their you know, wildest dreams. Yeah, it's like people that go to Wellington, you know, um, who are not bureaucrats. Within five minutes, they're bureaucrats. I haven't seen him make one change that he promised to make. Maybe I'm naive, but I haven't seen one. No, well, that's the thing. He's been in there just over a year. He's got two years left. 
to do something. And if this is his grand scheme is to add impost onto the poorest among us, I mean, you know, someone like you and me and or maybe Paul, we don't really care about if you're going to charge us on the road. We'll adjust our lifestyle accordingly because we can do that. But there's plenty of people out there who can't. And I can't see anybody uh, being able to make a case to their boss that says Wayne Brown says to travel at a different time. Yeah, like Biden and Trump and all those people, I just think he's too old. And I say that because he's basically the same age as me. And damn it, I wouldn't want to do his job. I think he he hasn't got enough energy. He's run out of steam. Either yeah. that or he's stymied at every front. But it's not even his roads. He can't even uh, tax on those because it's going to require legislation to be changed. Well, that's going to take ages to get through the government. He hasn't got the government on side on that. I'm pretty sure that no one in National or ACT or New Zealand First thinks this is a good idea. And it's kind of forlorn. Um, but the other thing is, is you know, I spoke to Wayne Walker earlier, a councillor, and he seemed to have some good ideas that were around uh, technology. And you know, by the time they uh, research this and implement it, and here we are $10 million and God knows how many millions later on congestion charging, there'll be technological solutions like driverless vehicles, driverless buses, that would be a whole lot easier to solve congestion uh, for much cheaper, and the private sector will pay for it. Yep. He needs to get back to his basic engineering philosophy and get the place working well. I bought a camera that I had to pick up from a downtown place in the weekend. I had to park. it It was near Sky City, and I couldn't even get there. I had to, and it was pouring with rain, I had to park about two kilometres away and walk. And I thought, hell, how the hell does commerce go on in times like this? It was depressing. And then last night, it's a bit off track, I'm walking my dog. Now, I live in Green Lane. I come round through the Ellerslie car park, around the hospital, back up. I couldn't even get across the underpass in the motorway. It was flooded. So I had to walk all the way back. Could have caused a heart attack. My yeah, dog, but that is. The, the, the dog probably appreciated a little bit of extra uh, exercise. Yeah, yeah, I suppose you can look on the bright side. But I think, oh, man, at night, you know, they, don't, they never change the lights in the underpass. You risk your life going through there. I know this because um, one stage uh, when my kids were at um, Ramura Intermediate, us parents had to form a guard there to stop the riffraff from terrorising the kids going through there with our phone at hand, ready to call the local cop to come in and arrest the perpetrators. Yeah, There's a lot they, of bad element around there. If they ever bothered anyway, to Anyway, I'm getting up. off track. <laughs> well, no, it's, you raise good points. And you know, the point about sucking the sumps and, and sweeping the streets, with these cockamamie cycleways, with these little concrete berms that they've built, there's no way that, uh, that they can be swept. And so you've got all this leaf, leaf matter and detritus uh, all blowing there, being trapped by these concrete berms, which is creating a hazard for the cyclists, which means they don't ride in it now. You know, the one or two people who use it a week uh, don't ride in there anymore. They they ride on the road and take up even more space. I'm going to say that because the last time I saw a, a cyclist riding in the so-called bicycle lane, I can't remember. Must be blind. Uh, I haven't. I never seen, see them anywhere. I haven't seen. I haven't seen them anywhere. I mean. You know, I go for a walk early morning in Takapuna. There's a cycleway through the middle of Hurstmere Road. Uh, you know, you could fire a machine gun down there for eight hours solid and not hit a single cyclist. 
I think we should do it. You got a brain gun, haven't you? Uh, a brain gun and a Vickers. You need belt fed weapons. Vickers to might do be that. a bit heavy. <laughs> 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 it's, the same, it's the same caliber, but hey, who knows? Yeah, maybe hey, we could do it, that. It, oh, we're joking, but it's not a joke. No, exactly. All right, Jack, thanks for your comments on that. Uh, that's not a winner for you, and uh, we'll talk next week. See you later. Bye. Bye. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Marcus. Good to have you back from the United States of America. Hey, mate. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, yeah, this is going to be an interesting conversation because I'm kind of out of the loop of all the um, news that's been going on. So, as you say, I've been over in the States, so it's been wonderful. Yeah, the driver's paradise. <laughs> well, actually, we did a few Ks. I did about 6,500 miles. Did a big road trip across the US from LA to Chicago. So, yeah. There was not much congestion, I must say. Uh, I hope it was all in fuel-sucking V8. Yeah, we, we hired a uh, suburban seven-seater, so I think it was a V8. Perfect. Gas, guzzling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought you'd be proud of me. Yeah, I am very proud of you that contributing to warming of the planet because everybody should be able to grow <laughs> mangoes and pineapples in their back garden, even in Southland. And by the way, they needed heating up over there too. It was quite cool up in Yellowstone. Yeah, I imagine so. Hey, um, so, you, yeah, probably, I... you probably missed it, but Auckland Council last week uh, voted to investigate congestion charging on Auckland's motorways, particularly, and this will affect you, uh, out west in a couple of areas and also on the southern motorway between Penrose and Green Lane. What's your thoughts on congestion charging? That's uh, Yeah, it's pretty funny. It's kind of like a... Um a tyre shop throwing out um, nails out front of their store so they can get more clients. Um, you, you you completely cock up all the traffic management and everything and, and all the roading and put things in place so cars don't go well, like all those stupid little traffic lights on the edge of the motorways and things like that. So you just move all the congestion around. So you throw all these nails out in front of your front of your tyre shop and then you get all these new clients. So congestion charges, well, they're the ones that are causing this congestion as far as I can tell. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, there's road cones are like stupid people. They're everywhere, right? And uh, and they don't seem to go anywhere either. They just sit there forever. Um, the fi- roads aren't fixed. Those stupid traffic lights, I mean, I've been talking to a couple of police officers, and they've said that uh, they can't even stop anybody for running those red lights because they're not legal, and so therefore they don't. So it's it's just a blatant act of brainwashing people into compliance when the law doesn't support it. And so consequently, I, I just drive straight through them. I don't I don't understand why, who was the bright, bright spark that thought those those traffic lights on the edge of the motorways were a good idea. I, I mean, I, I can imagine who it was. It was somebody who had just come out of um, some degree in university, some BA of nothing, maybe gender affirmation or something, and they came into a job in AT and they thought, well, I just travelled over to uh, Europe somewhere and I saw these traffic lights. I'm going to take that back to New Zealand because that's a good idea. And no one ever decided to see whether they were going to work here. No one decided to see whether they were going to fix congestion. And now you tell me they're not even legal. So that was a and, good uh, spending of our um, taxpayer money. And then you've got the situation where uh, you've got traffic lights uh, at intersections that are leading into areas that go onto the motorway. And the council's changed the phasing on them so only about two or three cars can get through before they go red again. I mean, Barry's Point Road right, is a that, classic for that. 
And they change them too, so you think you know what's going on, but next time you go there, it's completely different. I don't know what they're doing in that control room in AT. They're just they're messing with us on purpose. I, I, I honestly believe it. And I think I think the congestion charges is just like a, a means to the end. That's the whole point, is that oh, whatever way we can get more money off people, let's, let's charge them for using their cars. So, you know, because no one's using the, the um, cycle lane, so we've spent money on those. We want more people to use cycle lanes. So let's make the car drivers not want to get in their car and go on the on the cycles, you know. And I, I, it's just... It's just another, it's further up the wedge, you know, the thin edge of the wedge. We're sort of part-way up the wedge now. Well, Wayne Brown was elected uh, on the basis that he was going to sort out Auckland Transport, and it seems like they gave him a great big glass of Kool-Aid and a straw, and he sucked it all down, and now he's dancing from their song sheet. It's it's interesting, actually, because I when, when Wayne was elected in, I was kind of, a bit suspicious of him, but but I thought, well, let's give him a crack. And and like you say, it seems like he's he's well and truly been turned around, either turned around or, or he was always there. Who knows? But um, it's quite surprising coming from him with all his, you know, buffery and and, and the way that he acts. Like he's he's going to sort everything out and be the be the hard nosed guy and that sort of thing. But that's kind of not what he's doing here. It's it's really towing the line of of all these councillors that are worthless and should actually be fired. <laughs> and then you've got media lovies like Simon Wilson and Russell Brown who ride around on these electric-powered cycles and lecture us all about how wonderful it is and it'd be fantastic if we all took it up as well. Oh, the, the whole electric thing is going to um, all come crashing down eventually. That's, that's just a disaster waiting to happen. And it's not too far off, I don't think. I don't think... Um, because we've had electric cars now probably around for what, five years or something like that. All these Priuses and all the hybrids and that sort of thing. They're, they're all starting to come undone now. Like, where what are they going to do with them all? Like, all these old batteries and that, what are they, what are they going to do? Well, it's been around where, for where a, bit, are they going? a bit, long, bit longer than that. And that's the thing is the, these virtue signaling, uh, you know, electric car drivers who seem to drive around in a cloud of smug uh, don't realise that the end of life uh, cost for their vehicles is enormous, and uh, they just seem to think that it's somebody else's problem. Maybe, maybe we just ship all of the dead batteries back to the poor areas of Africa and Mongolia and give them back to them. Yeah, dig a big hole and chuck them in there so they can mine them later on. Well, they've yeah, already, I mean, they've been around they've already long dug a big hole. <laughs> yeah, I know. Dig, dig another big hole and they can remine those. Um, yeah. They've been around longer than five years, but over the last five years, uh, the whole electric... Um, push is definitely ramped up a little bit more. Okay, uh, again, it's just another. It's, a, it's just another notch in the belt of the you know the wedge we're travelling up to the big fat end where you will live in a fifteen minute city and walk everywhere. Yeah, no, I won't. <laughs> I won't. I, yes, you will, Cam. Yes, you no, will. You no, do what I, you're told. I won't. I've never done what I'm told. You should know that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're we're sort of uh, you're preaching to the converted there, mate. Yeah, absolutely. All right, Marcus, thanks for your feedback on that. We'll talk next week. All right, buddy. Cheers, mate. Welcome to Cam's Buddies, Jimmy. Good afternoon, Cameron. How are you this week? Ah, oh, box of birds, you know, causing mayhem and chaos. Enjoying the negotiations and machinations, your political... Yeah, I'm just watching it unfold. It's beautiful to watch, really, you know, so it's all good.
Hey, um, you might have noticed last week uh, Wayne Brown announced that uh, Auckland Council, and they voted on this as well, uh, looked like they are going to investigate congestion pricing on the motorways of Auckland and want to stiff us five bucks each way uh, during the peak hours. What do you think about that? It's the first time Wayne Brown's got a blot on his copybook in my books, mate. Yeah. I cannot believe he is going along with it. He never ran on it. It's not a, it's not a sort of thing as a politician that I'd expect from him. Extra taxes, just another tax. So I don't like it at all because there's not really any alternative transport for all the tradies. You know, I work with tradies and they have to they have to commute to, all over the show, all the time. It's just going to be another tax that's going to get passed on and it probably won't help much traffic as we've seen around the world. Well, actually, that's Wayne... I think. I think bugger all of that. Yeah, Wayne Brown actually campaigned to sort out uh, Auckland Transport and it seems like he's drunk the Kool-Aid and he's all for all of their stupid ideas. Yeah, but when he said sort out it, I thought he meant get rid of the bike lanes and get rid of all this, you know, traffic slowing devices and pedestrian, like, just go back to how it was when it was, you know, traffic used to flow. Now it's horrendous. Yeah. So he's not sorting it out in the way that I expected. But I guess it is kind of pragmatic approach from Brown because he can't pass the policies that we wanted, you know, the, the right wing wanted. He just can't get them through. So he's found a solution he believes will work and working with the left side of council to pass it. It's, it's, it is a very pragmatic politics. I disagree with it, but I kind of understand it. He doesn't want to just do nothing. So he's doing something even though he probably disagrees with it. Yeah. The, the woke Womble cyclist Herald columnist Simon Wilson reckons it's a good idea. And I've, I've gone through life, our political life, thinking any time Simon Wilson says something's a good idea, we should do the opposite of that. Just do the whole, whole opposite, generally. And I see a lot of the woke brigade on Twitter were enjoying um, Wayne's proposal, so you know that it's horrendous. It's just more tax, more socialism, more large council. Get them out but of it. I don't you know think me, it... Cam. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it would actually reduce congestion. I think it's just designed to tax ratepayers even more, so that they can keep picketing out, yeah, picking yeah. our pockets to spend on these womble projects that that make things worse. Of course, it's just another tax. It's more revenue. It's not it's not targeted. It's not ring fenced income. It just gets spent on more half a million dollar um, pedestrian crossings. The pedestrian crossing should cost about thirty grand. I don't think they should cost even that much. Insane. Totally, and and they're all all these things that they're putting out there, you know, taking taking road space and turning them into cycle lanes for for no cyclists, uh, you know, building expensive car park buildings with heaps of parking for bikes that never gets used, uh, expensive pedestrian crossings, uh, road cones for Africa. Uh, Nothing is actually improving, and they still want to tax us even more for the things that they caused. Yeah, well, also, in regards to public transport, my, my neighbour tr- tried to give up his car and commute to work, and he figured he gave it a genuine go for two weeks, and he said to spend over 20 hours each week on multiple buses. And he'd catch one bus downtown and then another bus back out to his work. Well, it doesn't he gave it work. two weeks worth of trials, and he's given up. It, it doesn't it's, work. It's not funny. You can't. You can't spend 20 hours a week 
when it takes them maybe 25 minutes to drive to work. Yeah, I mean, public transport is a slow, expensive way of travelling from not where you are to not where you want to be at a time that doesn't suit you (laughs) in the company of people you would never let into your own home. Well, if you worked with the council, it would probably work because you'd work downtown. But for any other sort of thing where people have got to go out and sell stuff or go to meetings, it just doesn't work. Or Or tradies. Definitely not for tradies. So it's... It's it's just another ideological nirvana that just won't be reached. They really should work on making more traffic flow. You know what will happen? Creating better drivers. More. They'll, they'll increase it. They'll put it in, and then they'll say, "Oh, it hasn't worked on reducing congestion." I know. We'll double it. It's not yeah. five dollars now. It's ten dollars. No, no, because they're only suggesting two roads: the Southern Motorway and the Western Motorway. Is a study, but you know it'll end up on all the Ontario roads. It'll be a massive tax, and it will never go away. It always increases. So I don't want to see it. I don't want to see it start. And I'm very disappointed that Wayne's the man that did it because I voted for him. And I've never voted for any increases in tax in my whole life. I think Aucklanders have so, had enough of being told what to do. We're the ones who pay for it. Yeah, so that, and, and we want. That's why we all, voted for Wayne. Yeah. And and now he's and he's, for, he's forcing us into this. He's drunk the Kool Aid and he's stiffing us. Yeah. yeah. So I think that he'll, if he does do this, it's going to be quite hard at the next election for him potentially because I know a lot of people that voted purely for him to clean out the council. Yeah. And exactly. A lot of them are quite alarmed at this. This is not what they voted for. You know, this is no different from him coming in and saying he's going to build more cycle lanes, which he which he hasn't, but he. The next election, they'll be going, well, who the hell do I vote for? And someone else will come along. Yeah. Poor old Wayne. We'll get the ass card. <laughs> or, or as you like to say, so that's my thought. as you like to say, he'll get gassed. <laughs> well, that's media speak, mate. Yeah. I guess. All right, Jimmy, thanks for your anyway. comments on that. We'll talk next week. Thanks, Cam. Cheers. See you. My buddies are awesome. They never let me down. And it's fair to say they are no fans of congestion charging. Tell us who you think was the best of Cam's buddies and why by emailing inbox at realitycheck.radio or text to 2057. And don't forget to be in for a chance to win a copy of Alex Epstein's Fossil Future by texting or emailing us your future preference, either oil or electric, and why you believe that. The greatest threat to our democracy and our country is the belief that someone else will save it. RCR is on a mission to revive Honest Media, and now you too can help make that happen. Introducing the Foundation Members Club, the easiest way to support RCR and be rewarded for doing so. Receive exclusive benefits only for members, including your very own backstage pass to join the hosts for interactive behind-the-scenes discussions. And also, our all-new daily curated news summary, RCR Bytes, delivered to your email inbox every morning, keeping you on the pulse of the news that matters in just a few minutes per day. To find out more, visit realitycheck.radio slash members and see how you too can join the mission that's making a difference.
If you'd like to contact us here at Reality Check Radio, you can email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio or text us by sending your message to 2057. Now it's time for the favorite part of my show, the mailbag. And last week we had a long interview with Gary Moller and we've had a fair bit of feedback on that. Uh, here's a comment from Beth. What a fascinating discussion with Gary. Cam, thank you. We feel your compassion for others. Anonymous says, fascinating discussion on stroke with Cam and Gary. I'm eight months post-stroke and learned so much. So encouraging. And Sunshine says, Hi, I just listened to Gary talking. I have a retinal pigmented epithelium tear in my eye and I'm legally blind. I'm wondering if Gary might be able to help me. This is a very impressive talk. I'm especially interested in citrus therapy as I've as I have dried citrus peels. I've also freeze-dried organic citrus peel local from the South Island from my own backyard. And I'm really interested to know how much I should take of this ground up powdery freeze-dried material per day. Thank you also. I'd love to get Gary's number so I can call and see if I can make an appointment. And Sunshine, we've had the producer uh, send Gary's contact details and shared the website address so you can get in touch with them that way. Thanks for your contact. Shelley says, I was held in my seat today listening to Gary Moller and yourself talking about strokes, their onset prevention and treatment. Gary Moller is a treasure to behold. I cannot wait for the next few installments on this subject. I will share this interview with my dear uncle who had a stroke two years ago. I don't believe he was as proactive as you in his rehabilitation, and this is a real tragedy. I hope he can be enlightened with the information discussed between yourselves. Thank you, Cam and Gary. Rosa writes, Cam, great talk on strokes yesterday. My 79-year-old mother got stomach cancer and rang ACC and said she wanted to make a claim. They said, you can't claim for cancer. She replied, why not? It was an accident. I didn't plan to get cancer. True story. They hung up on her. <laughs> uh, Mike says, hi, Cam. Always been a great show. Um, I really liked your interview with Gary Moller, but found it very lacking in physiological content. As you know, I've had a stroke, and for the first four years, feeling and becoming more and more depressed. I felt that I was of no use to, as a husband. My three daughters would be better off without me, and for me, suicide was the only option. But I'm still here. It's a hell of a story. Best wishes, Mike. P.S. I come from Walkworth, not Foxton. Please send my regards to Michael Foxton. He sounds like a good sort. He is. He is a good sort. And we've got two mics, so we have to call this Mike from Walkworth, and then we've got Mike from Foxton. Gosh, listening to the replay of Cam's interview with Gary Moller, wow. My attention span doesn't normally last that long. I learned so much. Gary has a unique way of explaining in layman's terms and opened my eyes to so much. I might have missed it, but did Gary mention the exact tests we should be having to determine levels of potassium, zinc, copper, etc.? I also have to add, as Cam stated, we all have to help ourselves, and it requires determination, fortitude, and dare I say, bloody-mindedness. Well done, Cam. I admire how you own your own self and still continue on your personal path. And of course, loving RCR and the team for its fantastic content. Now, I've got a, a long email here from Mike from Foxton. And before I get into it, I'd just like to take a moment to acknowledge and apologize for our mix-up 
in the 2nd of November show, but it was my birthday that day, so I'm sure you can forgive me. Anyway, here's what Michael Foxton says. Hi, Cam, listening to your interview both this week and last week, and, and as usual, you just knock it out of the park. I'm always left wanting more, so thanks. There was a mistake made or I heard things wrong when you read out some feedback that started out sounding like mine, but it mentioned that this person had invented stuff, had patents, and a couple of other things that were not me. I just wanted to let you know there's been a mix-up somewhere, and I would never try and take credit for something that was not mine or take credit for all. No, Mike, I know you're dead set honest, and that's why I want you to be one of my buddies. Anyway, listening to you and Gary Moller, I heard another link between you and I with our stroke. Gary mentioned glandular fever and the link between the two, and you said you once had glandular fever as well. The year that Kiwi won the Melbourne Cup, I got glandular fever and was very sick for a long time. It also seemed to come back over the years at weird times, but never as bad as the first time. I was very lucky the first time I was running my father's service station in Paikokariki and was found lying on the floor unconscious by a local who just happened to be the purser on the Arahura with my dad. And he was not only a good friend of my dad's, but very highly qualified at acupuncture and a natural healer. He shut up the gas station, took me to his place, rang my dad and started work on me. It's a long story, but I got better over time and with care from Neil. I'd really like to talk to you about the stroke and the similarities, but also know you're very busy. So if you could spend 10 to 15 minutes, please give me a call. You know what, Mike, I am going to give you a call because I also have a little bit of a prize for you, but um, which is a, a book. We've got two copies of the books, and we decided to give one to you, Mike, and to open the other one up to a competition. So I'll be talking to you shortly about that. Gabrielle says, hi, Cam, love the chat with Gary Moller, practical advice from a learned and experienced health pr practitioner. I've known Gary for quite some time and everyone I've referred to him has achieved better health. Hope you continue to have him on RCR. And I'll look forward to hearing about your own health as your own health improves. Love your show, along with all the other hosts on RCR. Keep up the good work. At one comment uh, from Jimmy. Uh, about my interview with Graham Davis. Enjoyed your conversation with Davis. We had a family shop, shoe shop, mangers in Victoria Parade opposite Cable and wire, Wireless. And your name Slater rings a bell. Yeah, probably will. Dad was uh, in quite a high-powered job uh, back in the late 60s in Suva. Now some feedback about John Banks. Cam asked for feedback on his chat with John Banks. I've just listened to it for the second time. It's brilliant. And I agree with everything they said. I wish every New Zealander would listen to it. It's common sense, which has sadly been lost in this country. And we have one final comment about Casey Costello. Love the interview with Casey Costello and the hope that she would win the by-election. I know what you meant, but my mind boggles at your comment about the need to physically turn New Zealand around. And it's the mailbag for this week. This is The Crunch with Cam Slater. Conversations with a side of controversy, right here on RCR. Right, that's it for The Crunch this week. I'm really annoyed with Wayne Brown. He's been in power for just over a year and hasn't delivered on any of his promises, most notably his wish to clean out Auckland Transport. 
Aucklanders are sick and tired of being milked by a rapacious government in Auckland Council through extra fuel taxes, and now there's this stupid suggestion. Wayne Walker seems to have his head screwed on correctly. Let's hope he can get some cut through. And next week, I'll have another Auckland councillor on, Daniel Newman, and we'll take this up with him as well. And plus, I'll chat with Fletcher Tabuto, who's returning to Parliament again with New Zealand First. It's always good to hear from some of the key figures in the incoming government, and Shane Jones has a reputation for plain speaking, which is going to be a shock for some of those bureaucrats. And that's what we do here at The Crunch. We watch who's up, who's down, who's in, and who's out. And if you're using the RCR app, and you really should be, you can easily get all of our replays as well as listen live. And a big thanks to the team that helps put together the show and make it all work. It's been a real pleasure having you all back this week. I'm loving all your feedback and really enjoying talking to so many people, sharing their thoughts on politics, life, and everything in between. So a big shout out to all of you, and thank you for listening and having faith in me as we continue to explore this beautiful game of politics. Don't forget, email suggestions to inbox at realitycheck.radio for people for me to interview. And let's make this show the best political show in New Zealand. Stay tuned for a breakfast show repeat coming up next with features including Money Talks with my mate Fazan Irani and Perigo's Perspective with the one and only Lindsay Perigo. I'm looking forward to having you join me again next Thursday at 4pm for The Crunch with Cam Slater. You've been listening to The Crunch with Cam Slater. Remember, you can check out the replays for today's show on our website at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash replays. Tune in every Thursday at 4pm for more with Cam Slater. Right here on RCR. Reality Check Radio.